Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm John, or Sinstaku, as you might know me on Twitter, the executive producer here, and I just want to thank you for watching. It really means a lot to us that people watch, listen to, and enjoy our shows. If you want to help us keep making these shows as fun and lively as they can be, please join your fellow fans in supporting us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms, or by subscribing to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash finalshowfilms. It really means a lot to us that the amount of you who do support us continue to do so, especially our $25 plus tier supporters on Patreon. Antitonic, Catwater Flame, Samantha Bates, Maureen Monty, and Gravity Alexander. Every little bit helps, so thank you to all of our patrons and subs. Check us out on Twitter at Final Show Films and on our website at www.finalshowfilms.com for updates, go live notifications, and more. We love interacting with you, so feel free to tweet at us or email us at finalshowfilms at gmail.com. That being said, please relax and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 50. Uh, I'm John Bates. At, I'm John, at John A. Bates on Twitter. With me today is Jack. Hey, everybody. I'm Jack. I'm at all F4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm at JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And today we're going to be talking about episode 49 of Critical Role's first campaign, uh, titled A Name is Earned, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxeldon, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Riegel as Scanlon, Travis Wingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Previously on Critical Role, the party came across a bunch of basilisks, almost died, found Tyriok, and uh, revived him without reattaching his arm. <laughs> I think I have that covers it pretty much. That the pretty much there. covers literally the entire episode. Yep. <clears throat> uh, it was like, it was a combat heavy episode. <laughs> um, yeah. No, so after having revived Tyriok with his arm, they, they asked him if he knew where any orcs were, because I don't know if I've just blocked this out from my memory, but I have no idea why they're hunting the orcs in the first place. So they're so the looking orcs, for, yeah, yeah. They're looking for the orcs because the orcs had captured a, bu a bunch of people from the survivors of Westrum. Okay. That little refugee camp. And they were told and this at the refugee camp. They were told this at the refugee camp, and their thought was these orcs might have some, might be working for the herd or the local dragon. Right. Or whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah, no, I, I just... For whatever reason, the entirety of the encounter with the civilian encampment is a blur in my brain, and I can't remember any of it, having seen it twice. <laughs> I mean, I wish that was the case with this one. <laughs> yes, yeah, spoiler alert, episode, ladies. Spoiler alert, listeners. If you like this episode, I'm sorry for what I'm going to be saying. Well, my part of the episode was absolutely fine. So we're going to go yeah, to yeah, my part yeah, first, because I threw yeah. it off this week. Uh, so with with Tyriok in tow, sort of leading the way, the the uh, group of Vox Machina begin hunting down this band of orcs, which they quickly determined to probably be a bad idea, because Tyriok is being very loud as he wanders around looking at random, pe random pieces of flora, yeah, Flora is. Yeah, Flora is right. Yeah, looking at random yes, pieces. Yes, if you're of talking flora, about plants. Yeah, 
looking right at pieces of flora and picking up and picking up trails from memory based on a tree stump that he sees and things like that very good very useful for like you know keeping track of where you're going and trying to navigate back however he does so in an extremely loud manner and when vex when vexalia suggests that perhaps they should be stealthing he responds with i was which is one of the best little one of the best little NPC moments of the episode so far, at least for me. Um, just the, the, the absolute, the absolute, you know, unawareness or obliviousness of the NPC trying to be quiet was really nice. Uh, they eventually work it out that Tyriok will guide them from the back and they'll, they will proceed ahead. At which point, <clears throat> Vax tries to give him a knife. A, uh, uh, an argument ensues wherein Vax tries to give him a knife three times and Vex continues to refuse to give him the knife instead opting to give him a different knife uh, because Vex for some reason doesn't want Vax to give away one of his magic knives with the intent of keeping a person safe and getting it back later instead preferring to give him a non-magic knife f for reasons that are never actually explained uh, at least as far as this particular instance goes. Uh, eventually, they manage to sort it out. Vex, uh, Vex does give uh, Tyriok his keen knife in particular, uh, and uh, he sort of hangs out behind the group giving the directions. After going for a little bit, they discover what they, they, they happen upon a pair of orcs that seem to have been out hunting as they have, uh, they are dragging behind them a boar through the frozen frost weld. Frostweld? Frostweald? Frostweald. Frostweald? Weald? Anyways. Weald. Uh, the Frostweald. <clears throat> um, after yet another bit of consternation amongst the group, they decide that they are going to track the orcs to the camp and save the people from the camp and kill all the orcs in the camp. Uh -huh. I say a bit of consternation because three of them want to just kill the orcs and track the rest, and the other three want to follow the orcs back to their camp. Eventually, they they determine that the wiser choice would be to follow and not kill, and so they do. There's not a lot of stuff that actually happens in here. I'm just going to stop and clarify that most of the what is a fairly simple description right here is taken up with people going back and forth about how they want to do it and which order they want to do it in, as is the normal for Vox Machina. Right. Or D&D in general, really. I was I mean, yeah, to be fair. Vox Machina. Anytime you get a group of six to eight players, 90% of your session is going to be arguing okay, about, what about what to do. this? Now. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hell, we have that happen for 90% of our, 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 our sessions when there's five <laughs> Cabaron. And when we have two objectives. Uh, but yeah, so they, they eventually track, uh, follow these orcs back to their camp and find the camp where they determine uh, they find uh, this fairly large orc encampment that has a couple of bears in it that the orcs seem to be using for uh, battle pets and things. Um, there they see a pair of orcs hucking javelins at a human trapped to a tree, which as far as recreational sports go, I feel like they're, you know, spot on there. Yeah. Uh, 
Nothing like top, no, top notch athletic activity there. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing quite as character building as throwing sticks into a live captive. Uh, Just ask the Norse gods. Yeah. Yep. Or the Greek gods. Mm-hmm. Or really any most, most pantheons, honestly. Yeah, yeah, most pantheon oriented gods, really. The Greeks were the Greek the the Olympian gods though were less about like throwing things into people for sport and more about like chaining people to things so their organs could be eaten. How, how do you think the javelin toss became an Olympic sport, Jeremy? Uh, Zeus was like, hey, is there a sport that references the fact that I like to stick my dick in literally everything? <laughs> and they said, now. well, uh, we could come up with something. We could throw javelins at people. Works. Hey, Do it. that works. Do it. More of that, please. Yes. Uh, also, Zeus threw lightning bolts and so lightning bolts and javelins. Okay, that works too. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> Can't wait. Not that it wasn't a not that it wasn't about phallic symbols. It just wasn't all about phallic symbols. Fair. Hundred percent phallic symbols. It was only ninety percent phallic symbols. <laughs> Anyways. Uh pair of orcs throwing javelins at a live target. Uh yes. a bunch of other orcs sort of milling about, going about their daily uh, about their daily needs, and Vox Machina sort of camped out in the forest watching them, coming up with a plan. They eventually come up with the plan of uh, Scanlan creating uh, his magical mansion, uh, which they determine he can do at quite a distance, uh, in order to provide a safe haven for the captives while the rest of them deal with the orcs. Uh, and then after having that set up, Scanlan and Keyleth are going to cause a distraction at the front of the camp, while the rest of the, of the, rest of the crew, having spread out, flanking it on either side, attack from the sides and sort of both get people out and also... Uh, uh, kill the orcs. They initiate their plan, and it starts off going pretty well. Uh, Scanlan casts his door, and then Keyleth summons woodland creatures. Uh, at this point, we at this point we make a note that the summon woodland creatures spell apparently at the time said your DM will have a list of things you can summon, which is bullshit. Whenever you're designing a spell, <laughs> list the full amount of the effects or where they can find the full amount of the effects in the spell. None of this ask your DM bullshit. We already have enough in our heads. <laughs> now I have to pull up a monster manual and figure out what fucking creatures you can summon with this goddamn spell. My own that's my own personal rant. <laughs> I mean, so rant valid. <laughs> there is a legitimate reason for this though. And the reason for it is an argument that I have heard is that the, the text of the spell as written doesn't have the player choose the creatures. The DM chooses the creatures. The player chooses whether it's two of this or this CR rating or this or whatever, but the DM is ultimately the person who chooses what monsters. That's why it falls on them. I mean, I, I, I recognize the validity of, hey, the DM chooses for those DMs like myself who are a little, let, let, let's say a little obsessive about ecosystems. Right. Um, hmm. But if your DM isn't saying, hey, can I summon X rather than tell me what I can summon, might be considered a nice touch. 
Also, it helps take the load off the DM, who now has to have yeah. a separate mm-hmm. book ready to go. But no, I like I said, yeah, no, the spell doesn't spe- doesn't say you specify what it is, just specify the volume. Yeah. But still. <laughs> Anyways. I'm just saying I'm not I'm I'm not defending the fact that there is no list in there. I'm just saying there's an explanation for why. Yes, there is an explanation for one, and it is a valid explanation for it. Equally, GMs that are frustrated with that are still... <laughs> still oh, for sure. Um, it, it ends up... Keyleth ends up summoning a pair of dryads uh, <laughs> out into the open in front, of the tra- in front of the orc camp, who immediately collapse into a trap that had been laid out in front of the orc camp, one of them dying, the other one being severely injured. Best moment of the fucking episode. <laughs> Keyleth... Slightly surprised, turns to Scanlan and goes, see, that could have been me. <laughs> For previously, the suggestion having been Keyleth going out and, and transforming into something. Right. Following this, Scanlan uh, uses his Autolux, I think it's Autolux Resilience Sphere, is the name? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, casts Autolux Resilience Sphere on himself and then hamster balls himself into the middle of the into the middle of the world. Autolux Resilient Hamster Ball, yes. Uh, and as after he hamster balls himself out into the field, all the orcs turn very confused and proceed to beat on the beat on the hamster ball. Uh, this is then followed up by the rest of the crew beginning their attacks. Uh, Grog holding off his attack, uh, holding off his his turn until the end of the turn cycle. Vax starts going after the guys throwing javelins at people first. Uh, Vex goes. Vex just starts shooting. I don't think she ever actually specifies a target other than one that has already been attacked. Um, and Keyleth goes Earth Elemental and charges in. Uh, in the midst of the fight, as they pretty handily actually dispatch a lot of the orcs with Grog, Grog siphoning off even more strength using, uh, using... Craven Edge. Craven Edge. Yep. Uh, who, uh, Grog sort of just repeatedly siphoning off strength getting pretty ma- pretty massively strong as he uh, uh, over the course of the fight just slaughtering orcs left and right Keyleth crushing a few at one point Keyleth throws an orc uh throws an orc into the into the pit trap uh after killing it which then landed its corpse landing on uh the remaining dryad and killing it as we see a, a perfect encapsulation of how of how Keyleth treats nature uh- <laughs> nature is a resource hmm? Nature is a resource, and I'll kill it as I wish. They're extra planar beings, just sending them home. <laughs> yeah, sending them home, painfully. <laughs> I mean, was that any more painful than it stuck at the bottom of the pit trap near death? I just like to picture that dryad in particular as Will Ferrell's character from Austin Powers. Yes! <laughs> I'm still alive! I'm just very, very hurt! <laughs> I'm going to try to stand up. Nope, my leg is very broken. <laughs> and this, this small mini drama happening off to the side. Um, Percy is firing from a distance, although at one point there was an orc that gets knocked into the pit and starts trying to clamber back up, at which point Percy walks up uh, tries to prod the orc back into the pit with a javelin, misses, says fuck it, and shoots him in the face, <laughs> killing the orc and knocking him back into the pit. What he should have done the first time. But, you know, Percy had his Indiana Jones moment, uh, which was which was still pretty funny. Uh, it was particularly funny the way 
uh, Talison reacted because Talison's like, I'm just going to walk up. You grab a javelin, look him dead in the eye and jab him in the face. All right, make an attack roll. I miss. You miss. Fuck it. I just throw it down and grip a ball at my shot and shoot him. <laughs> like he, he realizes the error of his ways mid thought. It's really great. Um, Scanlan, after getting beat on for a little while in his hamster ball, eventually turns off the hamster ball and dimension doors into one of the tents and proceeds <coughs> to start rescuing people, the objective that they actually came here with. Uh, while the rest of the crew continues Sounds fake, to, but okay. <laughs> the rest of the crew continues to fight and kill orcs. At one point, uh, Vexalia uses, uh, uh, summons Trinket out of his Pokeball yep. and uh, commands him to cannonball his way through a bear and two orcs, which he succeeds in doing, at least to the bear and the orc. Uh, the third orc, the third orc uh, in in line, getting missed with the attack. Grog really violently murders the war chief. Uh, I mean, the... I thought this is my part. No, no, no. The, the 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 my my part ends after the interrogation. Right. There's specifically overlap. The uh the 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 war chief is still in the middle of the fight. They have the fight. The fight doesn't stop until a little bit after the war chief ends. Unless you wanted to take over the end of the fight, in which case I'm happy to stop talking. <laughs> oh no! Either way. <laughs> uh, I... No, if you want, if you want to take over okay. Grog's violent okay. murder of the war chief, this is the one yeah. where where he gets the crit and then he pulls him down onto the sword. Oh no, no, you're still never mind. Never yeah, okay. mind. Okay, that's never what I thought. Mind. Yeah, you're you're thinking about the interrogation where he violently. I'm thinking kills about a, a different, different person. Yes, <laughs> he violently kills. He quite violently kills two people in the middle of the fight. The orc war chief goes down before the rest of the combatants do, uh, and. Grog having having hit him once with Craven Edge, and then coming back around and critting with the second with the third hit on his reckless attack, uh, decides and and killing him with the damage goes with a little bit of flair. He throws Craven Edge hilt first into the ground, sticking it there. Uh, grabs the War Chief by the shoulders and just pulls him down onto the sword. Very slowly yep. and painfully, as the orc dies, cursing him in orcish, apparently. Um, Grog, Grog, at this point, we can tell, Grog is a little fucked up. <laughs> yep, tiny bit. Just Very small. Bit. Small amount. Very subtle. Mm. Pike has spent the entire battle trying to get around the outside to where the guy who was stuck to the tree with javelins was to heal him. Uh, Vax has sort of been jumping around stealthily, throwing daggers the whole time, uh, and eventually, with eventually, they kill off all the orcs except for one, who they take alive. Uh, yep. uh, they take alive specifically by Keyleth in Earth Elemental form, grappling him and dragging him to a tree, where she intended to tie him up. Yep. They finish off the rest of the orcs, and then they come up to the orc to interrogate him, and this is the point where your section starts, Jerry. So, yeah. So, this is fun, because I, I, I built an overlap for to, to make it smoother. That worked really well. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the funny part is, from the point that I picked up, was a trinket attack leading into the grappling, leading into the murder. Yeah. So, it sounds almost exactly like what you were describing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so 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 Earth Elemental Keyleth has uh, has this last work in specifically a sleeper hold <laughs> for you wrestling fans out there. I'm assuming not pressing down because an Earth Elemental performing a sleeper hold on a normal sized humanoid would mean 
that that awkward. There would be lots of broken things. There and, would be a yeah. popping sound followed by a yes. head rolling on the ground. Um. So, uh, Grog basically threatens to threatens this orc into revealing that they were the only ones. There's no greater camp. Um, he asks if the orcs have had any dealings with the herd, which gets an, uh, a fairly emphatic no. Um, and then asks if there's any reason to leave him alive. And the orc says he will not be a coward. He would rather die with his brethren. Uh, they, they get one more question out asking about if he knows of any sphinxes in the area, basically, which gets sort of a derisive response. So Grog just brutally murders him. And I use the term murder in what I wrote up because it's not killing. This is flat out like Jason Voorhees style killing. And the thing I want to point out this isn't heat of battle. <clears throat> this is not everybody's attention is diverted elsewhere. Everybody, with the exception of Scanlan, I think, who is still who is off freeing freeing Scanlan and Pike. And, and Pike, yeah. And Pike was being NPC'd, so there's an excuse there, anyways. But everybody else is standing around paying attention to this, and nobody says a fucking thing. And to be clear, uh, he lifts the orc up, shoves the sword up into his groin, and then pops one of his legs off with. Yes. Like... Classy. Like, there's, like, yeah. Yeah, that happened, and everybody's just like, eh. The thing that really amused me about this is, like, we as an audience are like, that's fucked up even for Grog. And you can tell that that's the thing Travis is going for, but yeah. all the players are like, all the players are like, it's just Grog. <laughs> it's like, and that, <laughs> that's something that was where, and considering that this is where my part of this episode began in terms of, in terms of starting, in terms of recapping it, this is where my annoyance with this episode begins. Because when it comes to, and, and I'm not saying that this was an intentional act by anybody, I think it was just them not really knowing what 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 their characters would necessarily do, or thinking not 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 realizing that you know the character doesn't necessarily know have the context that the players do, but one of the things that irritates me above everything else in terms of of uh, uh, character arcs being unable to advance is that when those character arcs don't advance because nobody around them is selling it properly. Mm-hmm. Like, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Jeremy. Yeah, you... <laughs> let's not... Yeah... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, why no, is your face bleeding? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's it's just like like you said. This is a point that 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 clearly Travis is trying real hard to lean into this. Oh yeah, and it would be worth a moment, <clears throat> and it would add some character 
de character development and and that kind of thing, which is drastically needed in this episode. For somebody to go, uh, what the fuck just happened? Or to even, you know, maybe just be a little bit shocked at that point, but to, you know, when they take a rest later, say, hey, what's going on? And it gets completely, it gets completely sort of passed by. Mm-hmm. And that's something that bo it bothers me when it happens in in in, in role playing games. It bothers me <clears throat> even more because that's something everybody people can miss stuff. Where it really always bothers me is in single author narrative fiction. Yeah, and it happens all the time. Yeah, there's there's a especially in like in in narrative fiction, also in movies. Um, yeah, well, where... by narrative fiction, I'm talking about yeah, all yeah. narrative comics, books, movies, television, yeah, whatever yeah. the case. Uh, may be. In in novels, it happens a lot, but I find yeah. the most egregious. I think in novels, there's a little bit of a the audience is just novels are tiring to read, even if you enjoy them. It is an yeah. exercise. It is a it's a marathon of of there's effort in information. <laughs> Um, yep. And so it can get lost both on the author and the reader there. But in movies, uh, it'll happen where, like, uh, someone will just straight up fucking murder a guy and no one will comment on it because that's the hero and that's the protagonist and that's what they do. Uh, well, and that's that's a matter of I understand why it happens more commonly in film and in television, for that matter. And the reason for that is with film particularly I, I I go off about this all the time, but you have a very limited amount of real estate yeah. mm -hmm. in which to tell your story. And unfortunately, in film, a lot of the time, character loses films that this sort of thing might happen. Yeah. Character will lose out to plot. You and, hear about it action. all the time. Yeah. You hear about it all the time with particularly with 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 superhero films mm -hmm. you hear about this nonstop we have this great scene but it really sort of slowed down the pace of it or it, we had to cut it for time or whatever the case was because we had to get to the plot we had to get to the plot yeah and that's fair but if it's an important moment in a particular character's arc and that character is important to the story figure out a way to take the time there and and I think part of it, at least from what I've experienced in scriptwriting classes and in, and in scriptwriting lectures and things like that in workshops, is there is this innate fear in the film industry, at least, of having nothing on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, there is there is a weird, weird, weird amount of fear that scriptwriters have about letting a scene breathe. Yeah. And I don't know why, because in the medium of film is the best place for that to happen. I will tell you exactly why. It is being stuck in certain old standards where you couldn't let us, you couldn't take the time to let a scene breathe because every second that you were shooting was really expensive film. Yeah. It's not, that's not the case anymore. Everything is generally, unless you're Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese, everything is shot digitally now. 
Yeah, it's just um, I, or or Tarantino. But I, 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 I distinctly remember having to explain myself to uh, to my teacher uh, in yeah. a script writing class when I I, I I've, I've talked about this before. I wrote a script that will never turn into a movie, but it was right. like a concept script called Children of War about child soldiers, and 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 the, mm-hmm. the, the entire point of the movie was not only the glorification of violence, but the glorification of violence at the expense of others. Right. Um, and and both the media and religious and religion's role in the glorification of violence. Uh, and there's a scene after a particular fight where I put I, I basically to 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 narrow down because a lot of the blocking was fight blocking in the script. Uh, they fight and then long hold on this character sitting amidst the corpses. Right. And it's like why don't you and and I I had to explain to my teacher my script writing teacher that I was that there was the reason why there was no additional dialogue or no other characters came up to this person to talk to them was so that the audience would get to sit there in the refractory period of the battle with the Mm -hmm. character and just sort of be forced to understand what just happened or be forced to think about what just happened. This 15 year old person who just murdered 30 people with, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a, in a gloriously violent way is now by himself amidst the people he just killed. Yeah. And that whole thing is because, and, and it's not even invalid at this point because films have really trained audiences in certain ways. And, the process of how a film unfolds is very calcified at this point. Yeah. Uh, just like, just like any entertainment, just like any format of anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the format is because again, you couldn't spend, I mean, you know, before CGI became a thing, film was literally the most expensive part of your movie. And so, um, you could not spend that extra time yeah. because that extra time was going to throw you ridiculously over budget. And so, because that's, that was such a thing for literally since, since film started into about 15, 20 years ago, uh-huh. people taught film that way. People taught script writing that, and that slowly just became the way that it is. And if audiences don't get that, it feels weird to them. Hmm. So yeah, it, it's a whole thing. It drives me nuts, but I understand why it's the case. Anyway, so yeah, that that got me started off on a bad mood in this episode. <laughs> and folks, it doesn't get much better from here. I love this. Sh- I love this this campaign. I love this show. I love all the characters. I love all all the, the cast but I hate this episode <laughs> for so many reasons. Actually, no, really just for two reasons, that and the puzzles, but we'll get to the puzzles. <laughs> we'll get to the puzzles. Um, They're coming up swiftly. So <clears throat> Vex goes to check on one of the survivors who had fallen out of a tree and not one of the orcs, one of the, the 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 uh was, one of the captives was this the one that was getting pinned by javelins i believe so yes uh, yeah. uh and he fits the description that they got for cyrus who was leader of the group 
Um, Scanlon's untying the prisoners. He finds out they tell him that they are they are in fact the survivors from Western. Um, the party asks about about Wilhelm, um, and a girl says that she last saw him in town in Western. Um, the girl's a little bit scared. They put her at ease, and the survivors are are quickly escorted into the mansion. After which Tyriok comes out from hiding behind a tree where he was the whole fight. Good Tyriok. Because uh, Tyriok's not stupid. Good survival yeah, exactly. instincts, Tyriok. Exactly. <clears throat> um, they deal with the bodies. They get some loot from them. Uh, uh, Vex and Scanlan go to scout out where the beacon that 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 of of where what they had seen, where they they needed to go, uh, uh, was. And it is, they find a cavern that is cut into the side of the Storm Peak Mountains amongst a bunch of other natural caverns. Uh, uh, looking further in, Vex sees that it goes dark about after about 25 feet. He fires a flaming arrow into the cavern, revealing that it is fairly deep. Scanlan, who is in bird form, uh, flies in, but did not choose a form that has dark vision. <laughs> So collides with the ceiling, does three points of damage to himself, which knocks him out of bird form. And then at least he can see with his natural dark vision. Uh, he sees sort of a blue light, uh, just a hint of something, so, just on the edge of his vision. Really quick, with the Scanlan thing. Yeah. I want to talk to you about gotcha GMs. Because while this was not a moment of a gotcha GM, this was a moment of... Because I, I believe Mercer asks him, what kind of bird do you want to be? And lets him lets him hang himself with his own rope, basically. A little bit. Uh, but there is, a, there is a tendency, and it, I don't think it's... A, I don't... 50% of the time, I don't think it's malicious. The other 50% of the time, it is definitely malicious. But... There is a tendency uh, in GMing, in D&D in particular, of not asking enough questions or not getting enough clarifying information in order to ascertain the intention of the player characters so that their lack of specificity can lead them into a trap. Uh, yep. things like, uh, oh, well, uh, things like, okay, you've set out from, you've set out on your week long journey. Did any of you pit, did any of you get any rations? No. Well, you're going to starve. Things like that. Where like, mm -hmm. there is a, there is a weird amount of differing. There's a differing amount of information that every GM expects their players to be clear on. This is part of the reason why I constantly annoy you guys by asking you questions over and over again when I'm GMing, because I want to make sure I have the information for what right. you intend as opposed to what you say. <laughs> no, no, that, that's fair. fair. Mm -hmm. um, where if you don't, if you don't, clar with some GMs, if you don't clarify your intentions or clarify the details of what you're trying to do, they'll use that as a gotcha. Yep. The problem is that's only fun for the GM. <laughs> it's not really fun for the players most of the time. There are certainly some players that I know that absolutely love it when GMs do that shit to them, and that's why they are they have like 
they they tr they treat D and D like a camping expedition. They have a list of like they have a little like like a, a little graph paper uh, notebook next to them in which they use to keep meticulous track of their inventory and things like that, which is fun for them. That's great. I will never be that kind of player no. or GM. <laughs> I, my pro I have my problem with that kind of DM style <laughs> is it perpetuates a common myth, and it was a myth that well. I don't even say it's a myth. It's a play style. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it's a play style that reared its head early in Critical Role with one particular player. Yes. Who is no yeah, longer a player one. in this campaign. Thank fucking God. Uh -huh. the, 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 the meta play the, style where it's a no, game and I have to beat it. Yeah, well, specifically where it is the DM versus the players. Yeah. If you are playing to, if you are looking at, if you are the DM and you are looking at the players as your enemy, and to be clear, I am not talking about paranoia. I am not talking about games that are specifically designed for that. Yeah. And are clearly not to be taken seriously. Yeah, there's a difference. Between... Those games are fine. I love Paranoia. I think that it is amazing. We need to and I love the fact that rule number one is kill the bastards. Mm -hmm. we, we, um, we need to play Paranoia sometimes. We really do. Mm -hmm. um, but games like Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, <clears throat> um, I find there's a little bit more leeway for that adversarial relationship in World of Darkness games, only in that as 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 a dm you or as the storyteller you are creating a world that is supposed to be inherently hostile to the players at every turn unlike most dnd games even Correct. in that case the reason that so many that you have to be very careful with world of darkness games is because that sort of thing only works when there is an inordinate amount of trust between the storyteller and the players. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but but most examples I've seen of that versus mentality in World of Darkness fits the fits the D and D problem, yeah. which is if you are create if you're creating that mindset, you're not creating a good story. Ultimately, somebody is not having fun because somebody is losing and you're not supposed to be able to lose at Dungeons and Dragons. And this is a, this is a, 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 a paradigm we've riffed on before with, in final show films. If you go back and look at any of our two guys, definitely. This is a joke. We had a recurring joke of the, the evil DM that wants to kill all the players. Yeah. That was a thing that originated, unfortunately, with the with the system, though, and is part of the reason why it's been so hard to get away from it as a stereotype, because that was a thing Gygax did. And that was yes. a thing that, like, all the, the other people that were involved in the creation loved to do. Oh, well, let me be clear. <laughs> Gary Gygax was a visionary and an incredibly influential person on the game and gaming industry we all love. He was a fucking asshole. Yes. Too. Yep. Absolutely. <clears throat> asshole. Sorry, Jack. It looks like you wanted to jump in there. No, I'm just agreeing. <laughs> like, <clears throat> let me piss off more people than I have by our by 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 shitting on this episode by saying Gary Gygax was an elitist prick, an absolute gatekeeper. And fuck everything about that. Uh, like, people might get mad at that, but that's absolutely true. Like, yeah. 
there are you can look at things he has said he had said publicly publicly in interviews <laughs> where he talked about making the game harder so people could, wouldn't couldn't get in. He into wanted it. it to be an intellectuals game. Yes. Air quotes. Uh and so like a lot of the things that with a lot of the negative stereotypes around the DM, around the gameplay, around the the the, the gameplay being adversarial in nature, comes unfortunately from its genesis and from the first few editions of D and D. Yeah, and really we here at Final Show Films do our best to combat that. <laughs> well, and it's also, I mean, this this is this is this is a, a, a different a different sidetrack than we usually do, but deep dive into D and D. That's because D and D started off as a war game. Yeah, right. It, it started off as a game that you are supposed to win. And it was it was uh, basically it was the miniaturization of a war game. It was the equivalent yeah. of the equivalent doing the equivalent to I don't remember. I think it was Chainmail was the original game. Um, yeah, it was doing to Chainmail what uh, for those of you that play Warhammer 40k are familiar with Warhammer 40k what uh, the squads rule set for Warhammer 40k does for 40k where you would take, rather than fielding an army, you would field a small selection of heroes or a single squad yep. of heroes. And so each of them would be individually statted out in the similar ways to that an army would be, and you would fight with just them. Uh, and so that evolved from Chainmail into D&D, and uh, Austin and I did a podcast about the history of D&D a long time ago. I might have to find it again and link it out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's something we might ref we might come back to for our later critical thinking at some point. Yeah. But anyways. Anyway. So, um, where was I? Uh, Scanlan hit his head and turned back into Scanlan. Yeah, Scanlan hit his head and turned back into Scanlan. Sees sort of a, a, a blue light at the edge of his vision. Um, decides not to go in by himself in a, in, in, in a rare moment of this party exercising good judgment. Mm -hmm. um and decides to uh he he does do really he fires off a single magical missile to see it to, to see if that can help us hit and see or see how far it goes um he takes a moment to pee on the wall a little bit because he's scanlan and then he slips out uh most of the party at that point goes to take a rest for the night uh with the exception of grog who doesn't want to lose the mystical strength he has from Craven's Edge. Grog has a conversation with the sword, which I believe may be the only character-oriented con character conversation this entire five-hour episode has. Um... And he asks the sword... He, he asks the sword a little bit about Lord Briarwood, uh, and he, he's basically trying to push the blade for information about Vecna. Sword has absolutely no interest in that whatsoever, and does had no interest in Vecna, and so doesn't know anything about it. Um, and then it proceeds to play the 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 role of the um, uh, the, the the Faustian devil or Mephisto as. It, 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 it tempts Grog and says it's so close to being full. Um, and, and if he feeds it just a little bit more, he'll find out what's going to happen next and makes it sound like it's a great thing. Um, when your sword tells you, just feed me a little more and you'll see what happens next. 
that's always a good sign. <laughs> when anything that is normally an inanimate object, up to and including Seymour, or Ashley too. Feed me, Seymour, feed me. Um, tells you just feed it more. Don't feed it more. Um, anyways, the party the, the party eventually wakes up. Uh, they send the survivors back to camp and send Tyriok with them. Uh, they do they are do have the cognizance to ask Grog if he slept. He lies, he says yes. Vax looks further, has an apparently successful insight check, gets some information, and decides at that moment when they are about to enter into a strange cavern where there might be enemies and their mail their tank looks like he hasn't slept in 48 hours decides eh, i'll deal with it later <clears throat> now i will say there is an excuse for this one <laughs> This one, I feel at least, was Liam not wanting to shit on Travis's fun. That's all, I, and I understand that, but there's also a certain level of, like we said earlier, yeah. he was clearly leaning in and a point to, and, and an opportunity to make a point to the, the other Absolutely. players. Absolutely. At least, okay. We can't be sure that that was what he was trying to do, but it certainly felt it like it. It certainly felt like it from an audience perspective, but if you missed that or assumed that that wasn't yeah. going to be a thing, it does make sense that, because in addition in addition to like leaning into the darkness of his character, Travis is also having fun playing with the darkness. Oh of yeah, his don't get me wrong. He loves, be, he, he loves being the, the, the big violent And so there, there is yeah. something to be said about I, this is probably a bad idea, but you want to see where this goes, and I want to see where this goes. Yeah, so no, I'm absolutely. Not say anything. <laughs> absolutely, there is definitely value in that. Um, but like I said, so, it's an excuse, not yeah. uh, not a uh, not a not a not a good reason. It's just and serious. that's th honestly that one was a lot less egregious than the brutal murder that occurred the night before. <laughs> And everyone going, everybody yeah. was just like, okay. Um, Seems like if they weren't going to go for that one, I didn't expect them to go for this one. And so it was fine. Uh, so after that, they, they end up heading south to the base of the mountain in the passageway that Vax and, Vex, Vex and Scanlon found. Uh, they head down into the darkness, uh, down the stairs until they can see the blue light that Scanlon saw. Uh, it leads into a circular room with a pool of water with a faint blue glow and a script in Celestial, which fortunately Percy speaks. Because he's a nerd. Which is, eh, there's, there's an interesting point here, and I don't know, I don't know whether, <clears throat> so Matt sounded honestly surprised when someone could read it. And my question is, if he was, and he wasn't expecting necessarily that anybody could read it, knowing what happens next, was that necessarily a good idea? 
putting the language in Celestial on the wall? Yes, in a language that you might suspect that nobody could read because there's one and well, it was the sole cl real clue to what comes next. I think Pike could read it, and I think if no one else could read it, he was going to have Pike read it. Perhaps. I don't know if Pike can read Celestial. I think Pike can read Celestial. I think... Okay. The, I think... I think I think I'm with John on this one, yeah. I think that's okay. something that... No, that's fair then. Previously. That is totally fair. Um, um, and the, 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 the script reads, Knowledge dust billow, all realms are the shore, the sky a window, the water a door. No, I'm reading this specifically where I've brushed over a lot of it. Because here's where I'm going to start ranting. <laughs> I hate riddles in D&D in as a rule. There are times it can work. And there are, there are DMs that have made it work. But for the most part, I can't stand them. I understand other people really, really love them. But so often, and this has happened whenever I've tried, not whenever, but, 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 a decent enough amount of the a minority of the time and when other people who I consider to be amazing DMs that I, I have played under have done riddles which is the answer may seem obvious to the DM the answer is not obvious to the players and they're probably not going to get it this is a thing that expands to more than just puzzles by the way Yes. Oh, it absolutely does. When you're watching TV shows, when you're watching people playing D&D, your perspective is distinctly different from the people in the show or in the thing that you're watching. Yep. And so you are going to see things that they are going to miss. This happens a lot in Twitch when you're watching somebody playing games on Twitch. Uh, when you're watching somebody playing games on Twitch, you have sort of this backseat view of the whole of their screen, whereas they tend to be focusing on the center of the screen because that's where you yep. focus when you're playing a game. Um, and so they will miss things that you and the audience will go, that's obvious, they should have seen it, it was right fucking there, you missed it. And then you start typing angry things in chat and get banned. Uh, <laughs> or a, a lot of narrative television shows, I think I'm just going to use it's it it it's one of the examples everybody's going to know. Even if I don't think my two my 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 my, my two partners are, are caught up about are even remotely. I don't think you've watched it at all, John. And I think Jack, you're so far behind Game of Thrones. Yeah, I have way watched, I, No, I've I I watched up to season four. Okay, of Game of Thrones. So. That show tends to me to be the perfect example. And I'm going to use the part you guys haven't seen. Okay. Okay. Season eight. I'm sure you guys know what happens in season eight at this point. The final season. I don't, yeah. but it doesn't bother me. So go ahead. Okay. There's dragons so, and people die. Hmm. So yeah. Spoiler alert for anybody who has not watched a show that has been off the air for now three months, four months from the point Though, that this gets recorded. To be clear, there are dragons and people die is true from season four onwards. So yeah, <laughs> that's why I said it. <laughs> so there are things and 
I came across. I am somebody who didn't hate season eight. I think it's all. I think it's flawed compared to the seasons before. I think it was always going to be flawed because they were trying to wrap up one of the most iconic and beloved shows of the television era. Mm. I don't think that I don't think that it's overstating it to say that, yeah. even if it being as, as as recent as it is, there was no way that show was going to end. That was going to result in probably even a majority of people happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the eighth season got a lot of shit from everybody, and I think some of it was undeserved. And I would talk to people about this. I very, very specifically. Remember having a conversation with people who had read. I didn't get a chance to review season eight for 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 a few reasons. Somebody else did uh, for four and one, but I, I remember having a conversation at my birth mom's wedding uh, over the summer with somebody who had read my reviews for previous seasons and they'd ask, you know, they'd wanted to know what I, what I thought of the show and so on. And I was like, you know, I didn't, Hey, and clearly they were expecting me to trash it. And we got into a conversation and they kept talking about how X doesn't makes like why Daenerys went evil and why, um, uh, 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 um, John did a lot of the things that he does in season eight and why Cersei does a lot of the thing and particularly why Jamie turns around and walks away from is uh, what he has going with, with the so-called protagonist at that point in the show, which is the Starks and Daenerys and goes back to Cersei. And this is a long point and I'm getting to it. I swear. <laughs> But the point is, is we see these things and we understand very different perspectives as viewers. We see everything that happens and we see we see characters from essentially uh, 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 more or less unless the unless the, the showrunners or the director or whoever is specifically trying to be. Uh, trying for otherwise a fairly objective point of view. We we see we see semi semi omnipotence uh, yeah omnipotent view. We see things like the first several seasons where actually this is probably even a better example. We see the first several seasons where Sansa is trusting Littlefinger, and I can't count how many people I've gotten into arguments a bit with about how Sansa is such a useless character in the first several seasons of the show because she's so stupid and she's so manipulated by Littlefinger and this and that. And they don't seem to understand that this is a teenage girl and this is a master manipulator and she hasn't seen all the things that he's done that we've seen. Also, we're not in her shoes and we're... We yeah, and we're also not in her shoes and... Da, 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 da. Yeah, there's an even better example, one that people I think could understand, um, like like un, you understand logically this right. thing that happens is zombie movies. Yep. Or, or any zombie show at all. Um, and we all sort of instinctively understand that zombie movies take place in a world where horror movies don't exist. 
unless explicitly stated otherwise. Most right. horror movies take place in worlds where horror movies don't exist unless explicitly stated otherwise. Or at least where zombie movies don't exist. Yeah, like like where that kind of thing doesn't exist. So we, it, we understand that the first encounter with zombies, people are not going to know what to do. And they're going to think, oh, no, it's, it's, it's Ted and he's alive and he's here and he's giving me a hug. Oh, God, he's eating my neck. You right. know, uh, and, and we are going to waste all my ammo shooting it in the chest. Yeah, I'm going to keep shooting it in the chest. It's going to keep getting up or whatever. Um, and we understand that in every zombie movie, there is a learning curve the characters have to go through. Yep. If they're going to survive. We know that as viewers, the same concept applies to any form of media and any form of interaction you have with another person. The right. person you're talking to or the person you're dealing with does not have, cannot have the same perspective you have because yep. you're two different people and you have right. different things in your brain and you notice different things at different times. And so when you're designing puzzles, Yes. A puzzle that seems obvious to you might not be as obvious as you think it is to the people going through it. Exactly. Because you already have the answer. And it, it, like there are I know oh, we 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 sort of talked about this before we started recording, but like there are ways to do puzzles that work. Yeah. And um no if players aren't getting it, you're going to have to either give it to them or not put your important story beats behind those puzzles. Yeah. Either whatever's behind the puzzle can be lost forever, or you have to have an emergency pull this lever moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so that's where my hatred of this. Well, again, my annoyance with this episode started when nobody questioned the the mass murder or the, the brutal murder. It got worse when I remembered, oh yeah, this is the one with the puzzles. <laughs> it wasn't just a puzzle. It was a puzzle, which led into a puzzle, which led into a puzzle. It's the puzzle section. Which led into a puzzle. It was a fucking Russian nesting doll of puzzles. Jeremy doesn't play Resident Evil games. We can tell this by this information. No, no. <laughs> I play Resident Evil games. The thing, <laughs> that's the other part of it. I play games that have puzzles in them. And if I don't get them, fine. If, if I do, if, that's a challenge to me. It's a challenge I'm willing to solve. The difference is that's a game I'm trying to win. <laughs> this is a game where I'm trying to tell a story with people around the table. Fair, fair. Though so if you, um, if you as viewers want to see us playing through Resident Evil, just leave a comment below because that's one of the things we want to do a let's play of. Yes, or at least I desperately want to do a let's play of. Because I think it'd be hilarious. But, so yeah, so so keep that in mind as I go through the remainder of my uh, of of my bit, which you may notice brushes through a few things because I got tired of describing every that was that's the other part of this for this episode and the reason that I don't like puzzles in narrative stuff is because puzzles in narrative stuff I'm not saying this is what happens in this particular episode this is not Matt trying to show how smart he is but with a lot of writers when it is one person telling a narrative story 
putting an intricate tr puzzle in is a chance to... It's Moffatism. Showing how clever you are. For people who are not Doctor Who fans, yes. Yeah. Moffatism is an attempt to show exactly how clever you are. Even Moffat um, is very clever, and he knows it. <laughs> and he loves to tell people with it by 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 storytelling conventions all <laughs> the time. I love uh -huh. Doctor Who, but yes, Stephen Moffat. I love Doctor Who, and I really like Stephen Moffat's work on Doctor Who as a whole. But there are times he just he's so fucking full of himself, <laughs> and he wants everybody to know it. Um. <laughs> And so, yeah, that that that's the other reason that I that I don't like puzzles and narrative fiction is because more often than not, even if it's unintended, a lot of the time it comes off as this is and and having to spend so much time, and that's what hit me in this episode is most of this point of the episode is Matt having to describe in depth a lot of different things, and then the party trying to desperately figure out what all of these things mean and what to do from there, and which results in more description. And there's no character interaction at this point. It's all skill roles and shit like that, which is stuff that I'm not here for, personally. Again, some people love it, and that's great. I do. Not my thing. <laughs> um... And so, and uh, to to mitigate this a little bit, this is it doesn't start off with the most difficult trap in the world. It's a trap that, and I appreciate that this is the case. I'm not calling it lazy. <clears throat> Literally is stolen from the fifth element. Which trap? <laughs> so there are this room that they're in has four pillars and <clears throat> a pool of water in the center. And they managed, well, I'm sorry, this is, this is later. This, sorry. This is, they go down into the water. Uh, Keyleth and Grog dive in. They find a tunnel. They start go holding down, heading down, holding their breath. Grog is attacked by some plant life that paralyzes him. Keyleth grabs him, uses control water to get back up to the surface. It has a really cool little moment that I love because I love creative uses of of little spells like this, where she uses control water to literally take the water out of his lungs. Not something the spell specifically says you can do, Makes sense but I though. love it, and I love that 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 Matt allows it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> she goes back into the water, and with that spell still active, parts the water where the tunnel is, giving them a way through safe from the plant matter. They come out into the room, and this is the fifth element trap okay. uh, or, or puzzle with a room with four pillars featuring stone lion heads and writing in celestial, which I'm going to be honest, I didn't write down what I, I didn't I didn't write down, transcribe what this riddle was. But there is another riddle here. Um, uh, there's a mural with a dark hole in the ceiling and some runes on it. Pike says it represents something about the elemental chaos what they were told at the Platinum Sanctuary, and they do fifth element tricks. Yeah, see, Pike does read Celestial. <laughs> no, no, Pike does. So Percy read the Celestial. Okay. Pike says, 
because Pike is a religious person. Right, right, right. The the the, the meat of the riddle. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> this is actually not not necessarily that, but stepping back a second with Keyleth and the and the control water bit. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I really like puzzles in D and D because it allows for it allows for ways for you to break the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or break the game. It's one. Of, it's it's a game that has been designed in universe, obviously, <clears throat> and allows for a bit of outside thinking. One of the things that my friend Camille came up with a long time ago that is it's a solution to puzzles that makes me laugh every time he describes it. Uh, is you you whenever you go to a dungeon, you bring a donkey and two kegs of gunpowder, <laughs> and you. I think I like this already. <laughs> Whenever I'm there on is board. A room, whenever there is a room that is very clearly a trap, you strap one of the barrels to the donkey, punch a hole in the butt in the in the barrel, smack the donkey to send it in, and light the gunpowder trail. Whatever Jack, catches the donkey gets exploded by the by the gunpowder. <laughs> Jack Cor wants to buy a two do- a donkey and two bags of gunpowder. And okay. The, the mm. second thing of gunpowder is for the next trap where you wish you would save right, the donkey. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So like things like like things like that are the reasons why I, I personally enjoy having traps and things in games because it allows for creative use of resources and creative use of spells, like using control water to part the water in a way that they can get through, or use or the brute force method of throwing a donkey with a gun, with a barrel of gunpowder strapped to it into the trap. Like, I see, I would argue that you can do that <clears throat> stuff without needing puzzle. Sure. They, there, there are absolutely ways to to involve that sort of creative thinking, but puzzles are puzzles are sort of the they are the thing that's like it's like a it's like a signpost that says creative thinking allowed here. Yeah, like, like it's like it's, it's I, a mechanical incentive to think creative. I think like the the, the Eberron game and um uh, uh, uh fucking Seth and like <laughs> the very first fight. <laughs> I drowned this man. Oh, no, 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 with the whip. Not that fight. With the whip, where Seth did a very stupid thing and managed to succeed on an athletics roll and not fall to his death. But in the process of doing that with a whip, managed to capture a warforged assailant who was not really intended to be captured. And that took that that immediately took that storyline in an interesting <clears throat> direction. Yeah, I, I I created Seth to do stupid things like that. Yes. <laughs> like, how can I how can I make combat more interesting as a fighter? I still say, <laughs> I, I I I love the way that that game turned out in just about every way, but I still say it would have been really really interesting if you had failed that role. Because you would have been making a new character in the first game session, because none of you had Featherfall. So, uh, yeah, I I couldn't tell I couldn't tell if this bridge was one of the ones that had a Featherfall thing on it or a net. No, no, the the bridges don't have their own Featherfalls. Some uh, as I there recall, are sometimes some wizards. Uh, there are wizards who will have uh, who who are known to keep Featherfall handy. Because if you save someone's life, you get paid. Yeah. But yeah. <clears throat> that never came up. We never saw someone falling. You never, you never, you never inserted that for so Alex could get some money. <laughs> no, because you guys wouldn't stay in Char. You guys wouldn't stay in Char long enough. Anyway, 
Um, so they do the fifth element, the whole thing. They pour water on one. They fire earth, air, etc. And the um, the the lions start spitting out sand. Lots and lots uh, yes. and lots sand, of sand. The fifth element. <laughs> yep. Uh, apparently sand is the fifth element i'm not gonna anyway um and so it begins filling up the room vex flies up through the hole uses the party's infinite rope along with the their um bar thing by the way isn't it infinite twine rope yeah it's it's rope of infinite twine i think is what they literally call it like, I feel like it's not actually rope, but they just sort of side hand wave that fact. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <clears throat> but, you know, whatever. No, like, but... you get enough twine bunched up, it's as good as rope. Absolutely. It's just, which is one of those funny things where it's like, we have infinite rope, you have infinite twine, which is a much funnier image. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, using that and their immovable rod... They they manage to get something so that everybody who cannot fly is able to climb out of the room. Um, uh, the the room that they come up to is a hallway with a door. Um, they 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 take a rest there. After the rest, they see a symbol of Ayun on the doors, and they 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 talk a lot about what they should do and they try a bunch of other things and i literally that's all that i wrote down because there was a lot of them well what about this well what about this well what about this and that went on for like 5 minutes so now it's jack's turn <laughs> all right eventually <clears throat> in this room that they find themselves in where there are obelisks they find that there are a number of little grooves in which the obelisks that they have encountered before apparently scanlan's ayun stone have been utilized because this whole thing seems vaguely ayun themed which given that they're looking for osisa a sphinx associated with ayun's husband Makes sense. Scanlan uses his Ayun Skidone to eventually activate these obelisks, which causes the room to become illuminated. <clears throat> and they begin to explore around until uh, they find a hallway and proceed downward everybody's sort of stealthing around because they hear that there are passages and spider webs and that sort of thing. And they start approaching from various uh, locations, attempting to be stealthy. And then Scanlan is like, or I could just dimension door to where we're headed. Yep. Does. At which point, given that he has dark vision, <laughs> um, Matt describes that you see a bluish marble that is apparently casting a little bit of illumination on and of itself. And Sam can see that the marble is held by a massive paw. The description continues to where the 
marble is then being manipulated by this paw and then stowed away in fur as a huge androsphinx is revealed by what's been happening. Androsphinx being a male sphinx. Boy sphinx. Hmm. Gynosphinx are female sphinxes. I'm intentionally not involving myself in a fairly odd parents bit that I have stored <laughs> in my brain right now. It's a girl nickel. That's all you need to know. It's um, a girl nickel. The Sphinx rises to its feet and addresses them um, as they uh, with with a statement that he has been watching them approach and he knows the knowledge they seek, but that knowledge must be earned. And all of a sudden things begin to happen in the room. Uh, a cyclone manifests and they've been, you know, the, the, Oh, that's what it was. Uh, the, the room was illuminated because when Scanlan put his, uh, his iron stone in a pair of hitherto unseen braziers had just sort of, erupted into flame yeah so uh, really really quick not to interrupt your your riveting story but i had to me <laughs> i just had a realization that i had to vocalize because i'm an idiot okay i just realized that androgynous is the combination of the prefixes andro and gyno yep you just figured that out yeah i just figured that out <laughs> congratulations welcome to etymology 101 <laughs> I, I was like, I'm a dick. Well, no, because I was because I was thinking about because like yeah no, and androsphinx is male sphinx, gynosphinx is female sphinx, gyno is the prefix for women. I know I understand because like gynecologist etc. But it's like why is why why is a male sphinx the prefix for someone who is not who is who is between the two masculine and feminine descriptors? And I was like oh wait, andro is wait. Oh. <laughs> Let me introduce you, you to the etymology of the phrases misogyny and misandry. <laughs> I've never thought about it before. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming with us on that journey. So, um... <laughs> that is the best sidetrack. We have this one. I this learned episode. something new today, okay? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I appreciate that you are willing to share that. <laughs> I figured me being an idiot was funny, so. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so, yeah. Um, so the brazers light up. They meet the, the Andrew Sphinx. Um, shit happens. Uh, and so they, uh, yeah, uh, a stone that they're the, so there's these stone walls around, um, and, um, the cyclone starts and you've got the water and the braziers and yada, yada, yada. And then, um, the Andrew Sphinx starts the climax encounter with the statement of what is my name and this apparently seems to be a uh, a situation that oh a question needs to be answered which given that there's all this knowledge and blah 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 um everybody rolls for initiative it's a really overly dramatic way of saying who's your daddy i mean but that's not really what the question is <laughs> 
<laughs> the question is literally, what is my name? Um, dynamics begin to happen. Everybody's sort of trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Um, <clears throat> there's a pulse in the room as it seems that some of them suddenly become magically aged. The ones, you know, that don't succeed on their constitution saves. But with the statement of that knowledge must be earned and demanding that they tell him what his name is, which most of them don't have really any context for what his name is. And this is sort of the last riddle. Um, and I wanted to ask you guys about the concept of, because what they're here for is knowledge that they've been told will help them in their fight against the dragons. Um, specifically knowledge about the vestiges of divergence, which is why they've come to confront this Sphinx because he apparently possesses at least part of that knowledge and then has them earn that knowledge. What is your guys idea on, because what you have here is here's a number of people that apparently have the capability that given access to these tools will be able to hopefully defeat the Chroma Conclave. Now, most of us have come across this trope of you don't just, you know, you, you don't just get to walk in and be like, hey, I'm here for the really awesome stuff. Just give it to me. But what is your guys feeling about that sort of trope of you have to go through a trial or something to earn this information do you think that is always justified or why wouldn't it be oh you're the people who are here to get this information to do this thing that objectively probably needs to be done nobody wants to just have these dragons ruling why not just give them the info and be like hey here's what you need go on so i look at it i look at it from a term of practicality uh, if they can't beat me, they won't be able to beat them. No matter what I do, if they cannot solve this fair, what what the what the Andros thinks at least seems is a fair seems to think is not a simple riddle, but uh, but a puzzle. If they can't solve this puzzle that I've set before them, and if they die to me in combat for not solving it then they would have most assuredly just died if I had given them the thing they wanted. So <clears throat> the, the purpose of the trial, at least for me, from my perspective, is and has always been you know, way back from, from the origination of the, the concept of a trial in mythology, has always been <clears throat> a way to prove yourself for the task at hand. And sometimes it's proving of worthiness, sometimes it's proving of ability. Uh, you 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 can't you can't the if you can't beat the mid boss you can't beat the final boss kind of a thing and so you have to be able to pass this gate 
And in doing so, in passing that gate, you will hopefully have grown in power as well. Yeah, there's... I think it is a, it is a it's a narrative tactic and it's a story slash plot element that like any story plot element when it's used in a way that's thought out works really well. Um for me though times that those work really really well are when they're elements that reveal more about the character. Mhm. Um, I think one of one of the great examples that I would use because we haven't referenced Buffy the Vampire Slayer yet this episode. I was hoping we um, get through one without. Fuck you, never. <laughs> um, <laughs> would be, and this was one where Buffy is very specifically required. This is in season five when Glory's a problem. Mm-hmm. And Buffy and the Council of Watchers, who Buffy very blatantly told, I think, two uh, a season or two before, two seasons before, to fuck off, um, has information she needs. It's information <coughs> that if 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 the Slayer does not get, the Hell God is going to get free and destroy the world start apocalypse all that kind of stuff and the council says well we need to make sure that you can handle this so we're going to put you and your friends through all these questions all these tests all this sort of thing and the entire goal of it in terms of from a narrative perspective is that at this point, Buffy has been beaten down. She has a lot, had a lot that is that she relies on and that she cares about stripped from her. Her mother has died. Mm. Um, the, the level of trust she has in a lot of the people around her has been damaged. Basically the same thing that happens every season of Buffy, only this time also mom died. Right. Um, well, this time it actually mattered. Yeah. Um, and she is at, this is the point where she is at her low point in terms of confidence. And she needs a win at this point. And she needs a point where, like, and it, it, it literally happens every season. It's, it, it, is, it is a trope, but it is a good trope. And it's one that, that Whedon uses really effectively. There needs to be a point in this story where the hero says, this is the end for, this is the end of me taking your shit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say no. And she very much does that to the council and says, nope, we're not doing your tests anymore. Here's the deal. You need us. Way more than way me. more than we need you. Mm-hmm. So you can give us the information or I can go kick Glory's ass with it, which probably wouldn't have happened, but that's not the point. Um, and so that revealed that that was a good challenge because it revealed something about the character and it gave the character a turning point moment that was important to the storyline. When those happen, it's good. 
when it's just we're short an action scene or um if there isn't a point to it it bothers me yeah like uh-huh. there has to be a there has to be a reason behind it it can't yeah. just be trial for trials so. it's literally a crucible so it needs mm-hmm. to be something it needs to actually test the hero and not just be an excuse for them to have an action scene or a reason for a character who isn't really need to prove himself at that point so the writer can show just how awesome he really is because he also beat this challenge too. Yeah. Like those are when it doesn't work. Right. But in this in this case in particular, it's very much Vox Machina is a group of screw-ups. Yeah. <clears throat> and they have been this entire time. We're not yeah. going to trust the fate of the world to a bunch of screw-ups just because they asked nicely. Now, to be perfectly fair, in this point, solving this challenge doesn't really do much in terms of that. No. They're not changed as a group. The oh, There's one arguable change with one mm-hmm. character, which I'm sure you'll get to. Yeah, but, we'll get there. But for the most part, and again, that's part of why this episode rings rings flat for me, uh, which is a really nice way to say I really hate this episode, if that's not clear. Uh-huh. But is that this whole challenge and everything is basically, it, the whole thing smacks to me of, I need, oh, uh, I need a challenge for this episode and, and uh, this session, and I'm really tired. And I'm not saying that this is what his intent was. I'm sure there is a very big intent behind it. But I need something that isn't just another standard fight scene yeah right Mm -hmm. and for if if this was a scripted narrative if this is a scripted piece of narrative over the course of the challenges of the sphinx they would have grown significantly as characters but when you're playing DD and telling the narrative story with a bunch of different people not it's hard to do that no absolutely hard to do that Right. Like this mm-hmm. this is this is annoyance on a curve. <laughs> right. Because of because of, of the D D aspect of it for sure. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you can't you can't go, okay, players, this is where you're supposed to have critical character epiphanies now. <laughs> you Think actually can. To be clear, <laughs> as somebody who has story told mage and his story told more than one um uh uh I can't remember what they're called because it's been that long since I've played mage. But improving your arate, uh, and you have your you have your your avatar challenging you. You absolutely can at some point tell your characters this is your players. This is what you've learned, and this is how your character has grown. Yeah, in some games, yeah, <laughs> in some games, yes, mm-hmm. right, yep. Which brings me to yet another one of my, oh, Jack said this, everybody take a drink. We need to have you run mage for us, dude. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) That's not a take a drink on critical thinking, though. That's just a fun. No, that's just a take a drink if you're part of our group. If it Um, helps, I did take a drink. Good. But anyway. Yeah, no, to me, this is this is the challenge this is the crucible that actually sets up the real crucible yeah which we will sort of get toward towards the conclusion of the episode because i think i honestly kind of got the best bit of this episode because the really good stuff 
in this happens during and after this fight, Sir, in my opinion. I got Percy with his Indiana Jones moment. You can't top that. <laughs> eh, I kind of can, because I get Percy doing other shit. I think I get, we can all I get, argue. I get I got Percy yelling jacks. nonsense. I got Percy yelling nonsense words as he's desperately trying to solve a puzzle while the rest of them are just trying to stay alive and figure out what the fuck's going on. Regardless, uh, I think we can all agree I got the abject worst part. The middle part drags a bit, yeah. <laughs> you did. And it's funny because I always I'm always the person who says, I'll take the second part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did it to myself. So anyway. This in this Sphinx demands that they tell him what his name is because a name, you know, because knowledge has to be earned. Um, and then there's a pulse, and everybody's like, wait, what the fuck? And then they start to see that some of them are magically being aged, which is more of a thing for, you know, say Grog being a Goliath who biologically tend towards the, you know, maybe slightly mid to higher double digits rather than Scanlan, who's got a good couple hundred years in him and, a, and losing 10 here or there, meh, whatevs. Um, but this is a new dynamic that, that this group of characters has not really encountered before, I don't think, in terms of actively being aged by magic rather than having those time they, they they might have had you know oh time passing at different rates for different people but yeah this is this is new for them and everybody sort of freaks out because they don't know how to just randomly pull a name out of their asses and they don't really know where to start because right. hey puzzles um so Things start to happen. Time begins to shift. They literally have to re-roll initiative several times through this fight, which I think is a fun mechanic, but doesn't really have much to do narratively. Um, but And they begin to confront what it is to face a sphinx in his own lair. He summons spiders out of nowhere that come in and bite people and then blink out of existence. Um, shit like that. And... Uh, Percy, seeing these spiders shows up, clears out one of the spider webs and finds written in Celestial behind it something that just says windows and doors, calling back to previous stuff that we've encountered in this lair before. Um, which kickstarts him to say, hey, start investigating these aspects uh, that we've seen in the lair, the water, and that sort of thing. Um, so Vex grabs a rope, jumps in the water, and Matt whispers something to her, and she, when Vex reemerges uh, from the water, says, K-A are the first two, and basically it turns out that they have to engage with the various facets of the elements here. There's fire, there's sand, there's the cyclone, and each of them will apparently reveal more of the at least components that make up this sphinx's name percy jams his head in some sand comes back with j.i keyleth engages with the fire comes back with m.a.l and then grog leaps into the cyclone grog can't reap um which is hilarious in it in and of its own right um but <clears throat> This is when we sort of start to actually be, get, be able to go along with some of these characters on their journeys because he's the one who actually goes full 
force into one of these things without a tether to bring him back, despite it having been stated previously, hey, make sure you, you know, grab a rope or have something to hang on to. Grog acts, Grog doesn't think. Right, which is is fair. And this is when I think in this trial, we start to get some of these, this character development because you start, so Grog jumps in, is confronted with apparently something, and then in order to get back, uh, attaches the throwing chain to Craven Edge and just heaves it back towards the portal. Um, it connects with something and begins to pull himself back. It turns out that what he did was throw it into Pike, who now has a great sword through her midriff, more or less. Because um, she's being a good and friend. is holding it because she's you know Grog is her bestie and she's going to make sure he doesn't just float off into the elemental plane of windy shit. Um, no, the elemental plane of windy shit is uh, Mexico. This is just the elemental plane of air. Okay. Okay. I was going to say Chicago, but okay. I was going to say I was going to say a very very large frosty. Mm-hmm. That works too. Um, Sorry, that's a sore subject for some right now. <laughs> we went three different directions with it. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Grog manages to scramble back out of the portal with Pike and a sword through her. Oops. Um, sword and her. Oops. Yep. <laughs> Scanlan goes through the cyclone as well because he's trying to help Pike. Um, and then he's sort of just free floating also. So there's a whole bunch of uh, trying to get Grog back <clears throat> to actual sensicalness and figure out what these various bits of alphabet can be comprised into. We also learned that a standard action in. Dungeons and Dragons combat round allows you to guess a name three times, um, and then you run out of then you run out of turn. Um, Vex gets knocked out as through this whole thing, this Sphinx is still actively attacking the party. Uh, you know, to put pressure on because that's when people learn, I guess, or something. Um, sure, you learn under pressure. You just learn different speeds under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You learn that you bleed under pressure. Um, yep. Yeah. And eventually, after several guesses, Percy yells out Kamal Giori, uh, which is apparently this individual's name. Everything immediately calms down. Vex is healed. Scanlan and Vax come back out of the cyclone just in time uh, because that portal was starting to close. And the Sphinx basically says, hey, you've passed. Um, And he has one of the vestiges on hand that he's going to give to the party. The most important vestige in the entire campaign. The best vestige, in my opinion, as far as composition and lore goes. Not my favorite vestige, not the one I would want from a mechanical perspective, but this one is Mythcarver, the blade of the thin white duke, because fuck yeah, David Bowie. Yep. Um, but this is the bard blade. It's got some really cool, and and I remember not actually paying a huge amount of attention to this episode when the first time I watched it, but hearing Matt delineate 
the features, it's like, wow, Sam could have been doing really cool stuff from this episode forward and just didn't because. Yep. Also, just the white Duke, not thin white Duke. Okay. Oh, yes, that's right. But yeah, no, the the character that is referenced to have held this blade, Myth Carver, is referenced as the White Duke, a bard yep. of great fame and repute, apparently, as a reference to David Bowie, the Thin White Duke. But yeah. Um, and Kamaljiori also tells them of five other vestiges. And he, there are some throwaway lines here that I love where he talks about how knowledge is shared and in my notes it just says quantum mental entanglement question mark um because the idea is basically now that this knowledge has been revealed because kamaljiori has been the holder of the location and the essence and the characteristics of these vestiges of divergence that he freely shares with the party but because knowledge apparently has a semi-permeable osmotic nature to it, now that the party knows it, other people will slowly eventually become aware of these items as well. And people being greedy bitches will probably try to chase them down for themselves. So at this point, the the, the episode ends with Kamal Jalari telling them basically the race is on. Yep. These vestiges are out there. You guys need to find them if you're going to ha- have a chance at standing against these dragons. Other people are now looking for them too because the, the, the cat is out of the proverbial bag, which I thought was a really neat way of sort of putting a ticking timer on, all right, here's the actual trial though. I've given you your clues and the best info that I have but you guys are not the only holders of this knowledge now. And I really liked that dynamic. That was honestly my favorite Matt moment in this episode was that little creative twist of this is how these sort of races get started. Yeah. I like, I like, I like the innate magical, the innate magical implementation of a world. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea that uh, uh, this, this Sphinx, was sort of holding the magical keys to a lock that to a lock on information that once unlocked can never be locked again. Right. And mm-hmm. like the fact that I have now told someone this means that references to these now reappear in textbooks and rumors that were previously un unwhisperable are now right. suddenly being whispered because right. I've mm-hmm. unlocked the box. Right. The forgotten knowledge is no longer forgotten, and that doesn't just apply to you people. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something I play with a lot in my world. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so now Vox Machina is faced with the actual trial. Yeah. Okay. You stood up against a Sphinx and you got him to tell you some secrets. Big, big fucking deal. Can you find this stuff? that will enable you to achieve these purposes that you've had placed before you for quite some time. Um, and he tells them about the Titanstone Knuckles that are in Western, uh, Spire of Conflux, which is uh, been digested by a big-ass demon, uh, Fenthris, the bow that's chilling out in the Feywild, Whisper, and a couple other things. Yeah, some some very interesting stuff that is going to lay the groundwork for, honestly, pretty much the entire next story arc 
Though I will say a couple incidents. The vestiges that are currently being held by sentient beings, I feel like weren't hidden. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah. Or is it a thing where all of a sudden the sentient beings suddenly realize what they're holding? <laughs> or just, oh, it's that guy. And now the dispersal of the knowledge means what was a guy who had a secret that was helpful to him, but was a secret that he possessed yeah. is now no longer a secret. And now everybody's going to be gunning for that guy to get his shit. But yeah, it was a neat little sort of dynamic way yeah. to, to end the episode, especially and with Grog standing there also with Craven edge at his feet, having had it taste his friend's blood by his own hand for the first time, which is some foreshadowing of stuff that's going to happen later as well. Yep. We at least get to end the episode with some very interesting character moments as, you know, Scanlan is given the toothpick of a god and then decides, eh, fuck it, I don't need this, and doesn't use it ever again for a very long time. Like I said, the most important <laughs> vestige in the show. Yep. Right. Uh, wait. Well, spoilers, but I don't think it's that long before he uses it. I'm pretty certain. No, he goes he goes quite a while before using it. I'm pretty certain, but we'll find out because yeah, we'll, mm -hmm. go, we'll be we will be following the path. So I we'll feel like exactly it was a really long time, but but, but mark, it might be. I might be mark the date. Episode 50 of Critical Thinking is when they acquired it. Let's see what episode we're to by the time he finally uses it. Yeah. 50's a good number to, to, to mark. Yeah. Uh, so. You know what the best part about, about the final moments of the episode is? The episode was over? Yes! <laughs> Speaking of. I'm sorry. I love. Uh, I will say it one more time. I love this show. I love the, I love I love the game. I love the campaign. I love the characters. I love the cast. Fuck <laughs> this episode. Speaking of the episode being over, uh, we're now done with episode forty nine of Critical Role. Next uh, next time we'll be back with episode fifty of Critical Role. Uh, best laid plans. Uh, and we are now officially on our two week on our biweekly schedule for critical thinking, which uh -huh. means you're going to hear you're going to be hearing. You should be hearing this one. And and I'm going to you should be hearing this episode on the 30th of October. Uh, Happy Halloween. If you are a pay, if you're not already and you'd like to be sure, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FS films. Uh, for early access to our critical thinking episodes, basically uh, we're on a two week we're on a two week release schedule for critical thinking now, and in the weeks between, we will be releasing unedited versions of our episodes on Patreon. So, if you'd like to get access to that early and also get the unedited experience, which includes we tend to ramble on for about thirty minutes before every episode. Um, oh, you're going to hear so much shitting on this episode. <laughs> uh, you'll get, uh, I, I believe the, the recording on this started with us talking about uh, people being unhappy working under uh, Vince McMahon. Not Vince McMahon, um, the one that got fired. Uh, Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff. Uh, so you want to, we, we, our tangents, our tangents start early and never end. Um, uh, so 
you'll get a little bit of extra content at the beginning. You won't get any of the you won't get any of the pre-roll or anything like that that normally comes on our podcasts. It's a completely unedited experience. I just take the raw, upload it to YouTube in a private channel, and put it on Patreon. That's the full extent of the thing I do to it. Uh, so if you're interested in that, become a patron. It's available to all of our patrons, even at the one dollar tier. If you only want to donate a dollar, uh, you can do that and still get access to. Uh, the early episodes. Uh, in addition to that, we will be, after the month of October is over, we're going to be starting uh, on a new branch of critical thinking where we are going to branch out into other pop culture subsidiaries, uh, uh, series, I don't know why I said subsidiaries, uh, series and things. <laughs> Uh, and talking about them and doing giving the same sort of uh, recap and analysis that we do for uh, Critical Role to other properties, including a to a variety of uh, Buffy, Star Wars, things like that. What, what do you want to Can say? I just say I am so excited to for to get John's reactions as he reads his way through House of X and Powers of Ten because yes. that shit is <laughs> happening. I yes. guarantee it. Will, that, is, that, is, that is on the If line. I have to delete everything else off the spreadsheet <laughs> so we don't remember what it is. Did we agree to what we wanted to do first, though? Uh, I think we'd been talking about getting started on Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So we yeah. are going to be starting with some Star Wars. There's going to be wars amongst stars and discussions therein. Uh, when oh. we when we start that that'll be a video that'll be a video series on YouTube. So if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/FinalShowFilms, go ahead and do that too. If you want to hear us talk about the wars amongst the stars. Uh, with that, any, any 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 last words you guys want to say? Boba Fett kills the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Fuck puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are those, is that fuck puzzles or are you talking about fuck puzzles? Because those are different. I mean, fuck puzzles can are fine. Okay. We found the one kind of puzzle Jeremy's. Yeah. Fuck puzzles. <laughs> All right. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>